hello and welcome to Plants and Pipettes, a podcast where we talk about things from the plant world. I'm Tegan. Hi, I'm Joram. And what have you been doing, Joram? How's it going? <laughs> have, you, have, you ever, have you ever looked into worms and compost? Have I looked into worms? Like, yeah, it's like, go out my it's little... like the whole thing. It's, it's, apparently it's a whole thing. Like my, my partner, she um, wanted to have like a, a compost bin that's like actively inhabited by worms for like a long time. And now she had like another spur of it, I guess, with like, get, like getting all the plants ready for springtime. And so I built one um, and it's like several layers. And the idea is that you have like, um, compost in there with the worms like actively degrading it and then you get um, very high quality compost soil and you have like in layers because then when the bottom layer is sort of ready they, the worms move up to where more food is and then you can like take out the, bo the, the bottom layer and put that on your plants and then like cycle it through this way um, and yeah so she actually like ordered worms that will arrive probably tomorrow and that will be really like an exciting package with like crawling with worms mm -hmm. um and then we'll have like a little like stack of things like on top of it is like a room for a little planter that where some some herbs and some stuff might grow um below that then it's the compost and in the very bottom there is worm tea which is the official technical term which i find a disgusting term. i i just don't think there's a thing people have where um they try to give a more positive spin on something that's just like excrement. Like they call it tea. There's something else which was um, uh, some bugs. There's so many bugs in the air and they make something called honeydew. I heard about this on No Such Thing as a Fish and I can't remember what it is. But it's basically an insect or something disgusting and it's basically just pissing. But they call it honeydew as a way to make it sound nice. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just excrement and you don't want it in your mouth but like yeah <laughs> it's not better i mean at least the worm tea is not meant to be drunk like it's meant to be like a liquid fertilizer um it's but sort of why like call it tea then i mean we this is like watery brown substance um mm. exactly like tea it's probably like in the douglas adams where the machine creates a substance that's not that is not completely unlike tea or something like that. I mean, if also, I could... you've all heard my rant, at least on the blog, if nothing else, that anything that doesn't actually have, like, the species or, like, <laughs> that are tea plants, like, if it's got any sort of sticks in water that are not actually tea, the camellia species, it's not anyway tea. So, like, I'm not going to buy that something will pissed out. It's a tisane at the, <laughs> the very best. Is that the word? Tisane? Tisane? Yeah. I don't know tisane how to say it properly. In, in French, yeah. I guess it's a French word. Yeah. You can probably pronounce it better, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so can we, can you call it in your family worm, tisane? Anyway, you're, you're kind of, your family's like bi or trilingual with French as well. So. Yeah. Yeah. True. Mm. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for that. Although like my, my work is sort of done. Like I did the woodworking part and, um, like from like some old scrap wood, putting the stuff together. And now I just have to put my kitchen waste in there. But, um, yeah, I'm curious. Like, don't put onions. Don't put citrus. No, I think, I think there's some rules. Yeah, there's some rules. Citrus definitely shouldn't go in there. No cooked foods. Um, I, no meat, I no think onions. Yeah, I think onions are fine, at least from from what I read. But I don't know. Maybe they're also off limits. Um, but yeah, there's a couple of things that don't go in there. But we have like a regular bin in the garden where everything goes, apart from like meat. Um, 
But uh, so I feel like I should mention I did have a worm farm as a child, a couple of times actually. Um, we had the same thing with the two layers. The problem is Australia is quite warm. Um, so you're supposed to water your worms. You're supposed to keep everything moist. And my sister and I were not very good at that. So there was a little bit of, of worm accidental slaughter that happened there. It wasn't Yeah. It wasn't a happy time. Yeah, we have the opposite problem that uh, winter times are too cold. It pretty much mm. like from October till March, you have to keep them inside. Otherwise, they will freeze to death. Um, But now, like, I'm, I'm in England. I have the soil in my garden is clay. It's like this clay that's dense sludge like it's really just thick and like literally i broke my hand trowel i put the shovel like this what this hand spade into the ground went to lift something up i was trying to dig some bulbs out and move them into like a nice they were in the back and i wanted them in the front it snapped this like it's a metal spade it's not a child's like plastic one it, it snapped it at the handle like the the ground oh overcame and meanwhile in this this earth that is just like it's like black hole density it's like it's freaking it used to be a garden and it collapsed in on itself and became like a hyperdense mass and in this this hyperdense mass there's thousands of worms like i just don't even i don't understand how they get in there like i, I understand like logically they chew their way in but yeah I, thought, i just don't understand it yeah i thought worms make it like looser and like more aerated and Like, I mean, maybe they are. Maybe it was originally like <laughs> it was like solid a burnt-out star, yeah. And it's just like this is the history of this part of London. Just happens to be that it was, in fact, <laughs> a neutron star. <laughs> yeah, and now the worms have done their work. Thank you, worms. Um, yeah, and I also like like you. I also got a little bit obsessed with worms in the last couple of weeks. So I've been digging in my garden, finding all these worms. Like, and they're massive, juicy buggers. Like they're really. I was making jokes, okay, about snakes because I'm Australian and it's like obligatory at this point. Um, but I also found out that I think a couple of days back we had the full moon mm -hmm. or it's it's around now. It's full moon is happening. Um, the the full moon in March, the first one in March is called the worm moon. Oh, like it has it? a name and it's the worm moon. <laughs> and it's literally because March is the time. I mean, again, like Northern Hemisphere centered. March is the time when... People start digging in their gardens. The earth is like defrosting and the, the worms come out. So it's called the worm moon. I, I don't think the worms come out because of the moon, but <laughs> what a beautiful world we live in. Yeah. <laughs> the worm moon. Um, There's a worm moon on the rise. Like that's a really, <laughs> yeah. Just if, if you're wondering, you know, whale fall, that's Adele. Worm moon is... What is that, Johnny Cash? Who is that? I no. don't know. I have. Let me there. <laughs> I would not know any Johnny Cash music. <laughs> It's Creedence Clearwater Revival. Sorry, um, Bad Mood on the Rise. Uh huh. Do you know the song? Yeah, I know the song now. I I, I couldn't recognize it from you referencing it as I the worm moon. I see a worm moon arising. <laughs> that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, we have to this is not as directly obvious as the Adele song is. <laughs> might not be such a clear. We need to workshop this, let's yeah. be honest. <laughs> yeah, speaking of songs. Um I like I listened to a song like from the early 2000s. Um today I had like a rock playlist going to sort of 
I don't know. I it 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 felt like it fit in my my mood today, and I was listening to the Hives. Hate to say, I told you so. Um, a song I quite liked, and I realized that like it is a very rebellious song. Um, we're gonna like I mentioned the lyrics in a second. Um, and before the pandemic, like rebellious songs to me were sort of positive songs. They were sort of like stick it to the man. Um, it's like mm-hmm. do what I want because I can, and if I don't, because I wanna. Um, but then there's the line like I do what I please, gonna spread the disease because I wanna. I'm just like no, this didn't age well. Like I don't like this song anymore. I don't want to sing that these days. Like right, like in current context, this song is all about somebody uh, yeah. like not caring for the surroundings and just being a horrible person by spreading the disease. Um, so yeah, it's. I think we sh- we should have a um a pandemic playlist. I definitely um. <laughs> Yeah, I like for me the 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 classic is it's the end of the world like the REM and I think I've mentioned this before because like it's the title comes into your head when you're like oh god this is horrible this pandemic is going on forever the world is over and then like this song comes and it's just so upbeat and you can't not be like you listen to it really loud and it's fast and it's like rejoicing in the end of the world and it's just it's great. Would recommend. Go listen to that five times, guys. Turn this <laughs> off. You don't need to hear anything more we're going to say. Just go and listen to R.E.M. on repeat. And then we moved on to a very cool topic of how he likes to experiment on his own offspring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's already, I think, like two weeks ago or something. Like On the show, we talked about the the cuttlefish, I think, right? That could do the marshmallow experiment. Yes, but the, it didn't like to wait. It didn't like prawns, and it did like shrimp, or the yeah. other way around. Yeah, like, yeah it, it didn't like, like to wait. Dead prawn, prawn was sort of the less favorite food, and live shrimp was like the the treat. Um, yeah, I didn't feed my child um, live shrimp or dead prawn. Um, I got some like some some cook uh, cake, some like small pieces of cake, and like I cut it in half and was like, here, um, you can have this now or <laughs> Sorry, you wait. You s- Wait, wait, wait. You set up a camera. Yeah, I set up a camera. I mean, obviously, I had to leave the room and I wanted to see what the reaction is. That's true, yeah. Um, so I set up my camera pointing at him, like put him in the in his high chair in front of the, the table and was like explaining twice, like, look, if you take this now, um, like I'm g- going to give you some cake. If you don't eat it, you're going to get a second piece when I come back in. And this then is the classic marshmallow experiment yeah. that is known the world over. Yeah, my child um, is just shy of two years old, um, just for reference. Um, and they're supposed to not be able to do it until they're about three. That's, yeah. I think, the normal cutoff. But my and child then, is a genius, obviously, like every parent's ch- children are geniuses. Um, but yours most so. <laughs> mine most so. Uh, and then I left for a minute. Like I, I said a time, I was left for like 60 seconds. Um, okay, so you sent me this video and can I carry on? Like, yeah. yeah. So I see like Yoram <laughs> starting the experimentation on his children. I'm like, well done, Yoram. Um, <laughs> and then he leaves and like the kid waited like less than two seconds. He kind of looked quickly to see if you were coming back and then basically unlocked his jaw like a bowl constrictor and consumed the entire, like it, the cake was gone. It was just like... The- <laughs> no second thoughts and then the child just gets up and leaves and i'm like all right he's like eating his cake and he's gone and then you start hearing the scraping sound <laughs> yes and then he pulled a chair and like brought it to the kitchen counter behind him because he he knew that the second piece of cake was on the kitchen counter and that's where i got him when i came back into the kitchen he was like climbing up there to get the second piece by himself amazing um so i don't know can what use tools that's like above octopus octopus can use tools or they at least can they you can use coconut shells to put like they carry them and then they protect like they duck into them so they kind of have this mobile home so that's counted as tools um like 
corvids, crows, and ravens can use tools like you know primates can. So he's at least crow clever, or at least like yeah. cuttlefish clever, I guess. Is the yeah, yeah. And I, so he outsmarted me there. I don't know if you like. I wouldn't say he passed the marshmallow test, but he passed like some sort of test. Then I mean, he outsmarted you, <laughs> and then he also outcuted you yes. because you came back, and then there was a second piece of cake. And you said, well, you can't have this because you didn't pass the test. And then he just was like, but I want the cake. And you're like, okay, have the cake. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I didn't want to be mean. But yeah, it wasn't like the best sort of teaching moment. um, I mean, I think it was. I just think he wasn't the one being taught in that moment. Like there was somebody being trained to do something and (laughs) it wasn't wasn't offspring. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, but that was fun. Like, I have to look up more of like simple, basic behavioral experiments and see if I can do them. Like, I know that there's there's one um, where they where you can test if they understand that other people know other things than they do know. Because for like during development, children think for a long time that everything they experience and know is shared by everyone around them. Um, and there's an experiment that you can do with like a hand puppet where you like hide like a gummy bear or something and you tell the the child like look we we hit together we hit the gummy bear and now there's like the puppet coming um and it wants to eat the gummy bear don't tell it where the gummy bear is and then the the puppet comes and asks like oh i would like to have a gummy bear where is it and then like children who didn't pass that mark yet they will just be like oh yeah it's there because they think the puppet knows anyway and the other children um like later on they will like understand that there's like sort of two worlds of knowledge and then they um will like lie and say like oh i don't know where the gummy bear is and the puppet will go away and then they get the gummy bear so i want to do that experiment okay i think we're going to move on to plants now before this podcast gets like flagged for something <laughs> yes and shall we talk about like some plant signs now i think i think we could talk about plants <laughs> favorite plant and this week it's me um i i brought a plant today and i brought a plant for very personal reasons um because i feel very like stressed and annoyed the last couple of days i was like oh what's helping with that lavender is helping with that um and so i looked into into lavender a little bit um and what i first learned is that like lavender is like a big overall catch-all term for many many species in there it's like the entire genus um when we talk about lavender that is usually grown and consumed and stuff um it's actually lavandula angustifolia or english lavender that's the one that we usually know but there's many other uh, varieties um some of them like purely ornamental some of them like grown um uh, wait isn't all lavender purely ornamental i mean you can um uh, I mean, jumping ahead into the uses oh, of sorry, lavender. Oh, sorry, sorry. I'm, I'm making. Thank I'm you for breaking the storytelling. No, Spoiler no, it's alert! <laughs> it also smells. It also <laughs> smells. You can like you can use it for infusions. You can um, use it as like a an aroma. There's like um, cakes you can make bake with lavender. Um, you can use that as like a, a spray. You can inhale it. You can put that in your bath water. So, um, so it's not purely um, purely ornamental. It's also sort of medicinal. And a little bit also used as a as a aromatic um, in in cooking. Although I also like I'm I'm not a big fan of like flowery flavors in in stuff. Um, I th- I think yeah I wouldn't go for like a a lavender cookie. But 
But and, anyway, and when you say medicinal, are we going to have to have the disclaimer that we're not those kind of doctors, or are you going to? Explain? We're going to talk about is, is that. There... Okay, great. <laughs> are we going to talk about that? So, but first, a little bit about a plant. Like it's um, lavender, or like many species of lavender um, are, are native to the Mediterranean area, northern and eastern Africa, the Middle East, up to India on Southwest um, Asia. So it's actually like fairly large spread um, across this area. Uh, and in the 16, like it was already known by the ancient Greeks. Um, and I just uh, <laughs> took, put that in because they, they called it after the Syrian city of Narda. And they just called it Nard. And I find Nard such an ugly word for something as delicate as lavender, which is like lavender is this like uplifting word. It's like, oh, yeah, it's like a delicate, beautiful violet flower. And Nard is the ancient Greek word for it. Um, but also like 2,500 years ago, already like the ancient Egyptians and later the Romans used lavender uh, mainly in their bathhouses to, um, for, for nice fragrance, um, especially during Roman times. And that's where actually the English word lavender comes from. It's like sort of the word is linked to lavatory and the Latin word oh, for, wow. for washing. Um, and that's where it got its name from. Uh, it spread massively across Europe, so also like to Northern Europe in the 1600s when sort of merchants were bringing it um, uh, across across Europe and sort of further away from the Mediterranean area. Uh, and yeah, and so now it's like fa fairly largely spread. Um, in Australia, actually, some uh, uh, lavender plants like uh, Lavandula stoechas um, is considered an invasive plant in uh, since the 1920s and because it was also like brought there and apparently it spread quite quite quickly uh, and therefore is considered there a noxious weed um yeah uh, mm -hmm. it's it's as we already said like it's 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 used in cooking it has like lemon and citrusy notes but mostly like this floral flavor soap <laughs> soap yeah i mean it tastes like soap um but the main thing that most people might know it for is for this like calming effect. There's all these claims about it helping you to sleep, reducing anxiety, having you relax. Um, and these claims are uh, very debated, let's say. Like there has no solid evidence, scientific evidence that it works as an anti-anxiety medication. But there also hasn't been like any solid disproval of it. I mean, disproval is often very hard to do. To me, like the lack of evidence already tell some sort of story but you can always say like look they just like the testing never worked i found like a meta study they um they looked at um a spe specific compound in there lina lo lina lo ol um that's uh it's a, like an essential oil it's the main compound in it uh and they could find that there was like a large heterogeneity of the available studies that they looked at but they saw that there is um the, the wording they say is like oral administration. So eating uh, um, lavender essential oil proves to be effective in the treatment of anxiety, whereas for inhalation, there's only uh, an indication of an effect of reasonable size. Uh, yeah, only an indication. So there's not a, a, a strong effect there. So if you eat lavender, there is some sort of anti-anxiety effect. But if you just inhale it, there's no, nothing like solid, nothing that is really trustworthy in, in in terms of the science um uh the other thing that i found about this lina loo um, compound is 
that uh, what I found quite interesting is when they did a study in mice that had no sense, uh, like they had no smell um, ability. Like I, I wanted smell. to say like they have mm -hmm. no some, some smell glands. Like they, they were like mm -hmm. mutants that couldn't smell. And when they were given uh, Lina Loul to inhale, they had no effect on their behavior. But when they were sort of wild-type mice they would see some sort of calming effect on the mice, which indicates that it's not actually the the lavender compound getting into the lungs and then into the bloodstream and then into the brain to act, but they get into the smell receptors and that triggers the calming effect in the brain. Um, so it's actually like smell activated and not blood activated, which is but quite interesting. Yeah, that's actually quite quite surprising to me because I can, you know, the sense of smell is like strongly evocative of like memories and stuff. And, you know, we've, we've done even stuff on the blog about how if people smell oranges or whatever, they think of Christmas. So I can imagine that like smelling lavender, you think of calming because you've been trained your whole life that lavender equals calming. And usually when you do smell lavender, it's somebody's putting it in a bath or you're getting a massage and somebody's like, so there is this kind of, like scent association but the fact that like mice also have that i imagine that those mice were not like growing up through their life and getting tiny lavender oil mice massages during like their their mouse adolescence and they weren't they didn't have that um like, whenever they were stressed background. out they were getting like a massage yeah 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 i don't think they had that um and I mean, I didn't, I didn't read through the entire study because it's like in mice and I don't understand enough of the science to really um, decide on that. But it was published in Frontiers. Mm -hmm. um, but I have to say that it's also the only study that found that so far. So um, the question remi remains whether like this can be repeated, whether this is like true. Like with these sort of more vague or like softer results um something like the effect of lavender um having just one study is interesting but it's not as as certain as other things but i think like for some reason it it, it doesn't loading it's not loading the paper right now but i think it's from 2018 so fairly recent in the last three years so there could be more more stuff coming up now um, but i found it interesting that is apparently smell um related and not like like other active compounds that get in the blood and then in the brain and then do some sort of thing to our neurotransmitters or whatever. Um, but yeah, I also thought what you said, like I thought um, it's sort of trained behavior. It's something that we associate with, with having a nice warm bath and therefore we relax. Uh, and then later on we recall that whenever we smell, um, uh, we smell lavender. But yeah, so that's sort of my my little story on on lavender. Uh, we actually have some uh, lavender growing in the garden, but I mean, not right now. It's like spring, cold spring time. But uh, I'll I'll try and see if when when it's fully grown, if it relaxes me when I smell it. Yeah, I just like you know one of my favorite visualizations is this informationisbeautiful.net, and they have one that's called snake oil supplement. So it's basically um looking at the evidence of different compounds, usually like, you know, plant-based stuff um, or like like supplements for health benefits. So like an example is folic acid. There's very good evidence that taking folic acid during pregnancy is good for the development of, of a child and not having birth defects and stuff like that. And they have like this kind of balloon race um, where they look at evidence based on the different weight and different substances related to their, you know, what they can have an effect on. 
so I just looked at lavender then on that. And there's no evidence for lavender having an effect on sleep, relaxation and anxiety, according to them. Um, and this is backed by like they look through scientific databases and look for studies and they think that it's inconclusive um, that lavender has any effect on depression or anxiety. Yeah. And they said that as of November 2020, they downgraded lavender <laughs> for mood and anxiety. So they're like, yeah, it's it's not getting more promising, <laughs> if anything. It's getting yeah. le less. Mm. I think the, the bottom line from the meta study um, that I mentioned was that um, while there might are some things hinting in that direction, there's no no solid evidence but at the same time there's also no real evidence of any harm so as long as you don't replace working treatment with lavender based treatment you don't can't really go wrong by adding like a lavender spray to your to your um was like to your cushion uh, when uh that's not the right word is it like but like um, on your bed sheet and to, to relax, like it doesn't do any harm, but it also probably doesn't do anything really apart from the placebo effect to your mental well-being. I guess at least it's one of those things where like you're mostly smelling it. So there's less likely to be a, you know allergic response or, um, you know, with some vitamins, that's the problem where there's the argument is like, oh, um, it doesn't harm anybody. But actually it, it can be harmful, you know, if it's a bad quality product, like a health related product or if it's. Yep. you know depending on the people so at least just just don't take it into your veins and you're probably okay with lavender maybe that can be the message like <laughs> as with yeah. everything i didn't find maybe. anything on a toxicity because like in the one study they said something about like oral intake uh, i didn't find anything about the toxicity um, it feels but, like you'd vomit that before like it, it yeah. feels like the sort of substance that is not pleasant I've, to take a lot of and it would be like yeah i've never heard anybody like overdosing on lavender like, we're not those kind of doctors disclaimer true. alert <laughs> but I, yeah. it definitely feels like it would come up again before it killed you um yeah i think to quote douglas adams another time i think lavender is mostly harmless so i thought i would go a little bit in the context of what we've been talking about and what's kind of happening around us in the last couple of um weeks this focus on the fact that there's been massive increases in um, anti-Asian hate crimes in the last year, basically since COVID happened. Um, this has always been a problem, obviously, racism, xenophobia, but we're now seeing like a, an increase and a violent increase. And there's a really incredible Instagram account um, run by Nina Chitta. And if you're not already following that account, we'll link to it. It's Nina Draws Scientists, Nina.draws.scientists. And we've we've mentioned it a few times on here before. She she just draws different scientists. Um, they're really nice sketches, but there's always information included. And of course, she's focusing on diverse scientists, so people of color, women um, from all different um, fields of science. So computer science and neuroscience and anything you can think of. There's something for everyone, and it's 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 great. I would really recommend. Um, and in the last couple of weeks, she did a. Um, sort of special feature about Asian American icons in science who we should learn about. So again, we can put a link there. You should definitely go and check it out. And I was just looking through that and I looked a little bit further into one of those scientists. Um, and the one that I wanted to talk about today is Roselli Ocampo-Friedman. So Roselli was born in 1937 and she's a Filipino-American microbiologist and botanist. Um, she was born in the Philippines, so in Manila, 
And then she first did her studies in the University of the Philippines. Um, and then she moved to Ha'u, but not the Humboldt University, <laughs> the HU that is the Hebrew University um, in Israel, so in, in Jerusalem. And there she received her PhD in the 70s. And no, sorry, not there. She did her master's there. And then I think she moved to the US where she got her PhD in the 70s. And around that same time, she also got married to another biologist and a botanist, um, E.M. Ray Friedman. So that's why her name is Acampo Friedman. That was her husband. And I mention him because um, he was also a scientist. I think it's quite interesting as somebody who was like a scientist and had that two body problem. I'm always interested where you have like a scientist couple moving through the world and finding success together. Um, and they also, they studied similar stuff and they were really a part of each other's life scientifically. A lot of the publications they have is stuff they worked on together with both of their names on it. Um, and they, they, you know, they were in each other's worlds as far as focusing on the same stuff and studying the same stuff. And he himself was also, um, you know, had a, a, diff a back difficult background as far as he was Hungarian born and had to escape the Holocaust. So he was born in the 1920s, I think 1921, and had to escape the Holocaust and then studied in Austria um, and then also went to Jerusalem where he met um, Roselli and then together they were... They, they were in the US in Florida for most of their career after that. Um, so as I said, the two of them had a lot of overlap, um, lots of co-publications, and this was because they had a very similar interest, which was in algae and other microorganisms. But they weren't just interested in like any algae, they had a really strong extremophile. And I think like this kind of makes sense for you in the context of being in Israel, because for me, like studying like um algae in Israel <laughs> I think of desert algae uh, mm -hmm. maybe particularly because we have some experience with an old colleague of ours um and we've also written a blog about this colleague's work um he was involved in discovering this insane algae called uh chlorella ohadii um which was like found on the crusts of the the Negev desert and this is like an amazing thing that can grow under light that is twice as intense as sunlight it's just like where all other plants would like basically literally internally explode from all that energy that's being pumped into them from the sun this guy just like <laughs> keeps growing and like just grows fast it's like all right more sun why not i'm going to like <laughs> everything else bleaches and turns white you know and this guy this is amazing like this chlorella so anyway, they were interested in extremophiles, but not just like in the very hot and the very dry. They actually went to the other end, or I mean, still very dry, but now very cold. They went to Antarctica. And in the desert of the dry valleys of Antarctica, they discovered, discovered some cryptoendoliths. So an endolith is just something that kind of lives around within a rock. Mm -hmm. So, like, the lith is, like, the rocks. Like, think of lithops, these little rock-like plants, endo inside. And then crypto is, um, like, hidden. Mm. So, like, cryptocurrency or, um, yeah, any, like, crypto file is, like, something that has to be, like, it's mysterious and hidden. So, it's basically these little um, algae or cyanobacteria here that are found within the, the cavities of porous rocks. So they're really kind of protected from over-extremes and they're, they're sunk into the rocks. Obviously, they're not like fully protected. They're still 
in extreme environments and they have to deal with the deep freeze and then this huge transition going from frozen to thawed. So like all of the stress that comes with this massive shift in their environment and they have this ability to kind of wake up and, and photosynthesize in summer and grow again. So they discovered some species here, but like she was also able to take them home to the lab and like grow the cyanobacteria. And it's Mm. described as her having a blue green thumb, which is like, you know, green thumb is if you're good at plants and blue green is a reference to the fact that cyanobacteria are often called blue green algae. So she had a blue green thumb and she could make them grow in the lab. And like, that's not trivial. I think a lot of people don't realize that Often there's a lot of species that we are aware exist in outside, but we actually just can't get them to grow in the lab no matter, you know, yeah. different treatments. They just like, they just don't like the lab. So this is something that was in Antarctica. She got it to grow in the lab. Cool. So based on this, not only did she have this cool discovery, she also got like a peak of some mountains named after her in Antarctica. So there's like a freedom and peak in Antarctica, which is where she discovered these species or the species. And she was also awarded an Antarctic service medal, which just sounds like ultimate coolness. And just as a reminder, like this is in the 70s, 80s, kind of, I think in the 80s mostly. So this is like some cool exploration stuff happening. It's, it's yeah. really awesome. Yeah, really cool. Yeah, so actually the publication came out, I think, in 1976. And then that work was cited by NASA as a basis for why there might be life on Mars. Because the the fact that, you know, these, these organisms could grow in such an extreme environment and, you know, these this kind of coldness was similar to what people thought was happening on, ice, on Mars, like, you know, icy and, and freezing and... Maybe there could be some sort of crypto endolith also on Mars. So, like, NASA was actually like, hey, this is happening. And I'll actually include a link to a newspaper article from the time, which is like, life inside rocks could be happening on Mars too. Like, amazing. Um, <laughs> cool. And later in her life, she also worked for SETI, which is like this, what's it called? Like the search, search for, for extraterrestrial, extraterrestrial intelligence, maybe? Yeah, I think so. Like the, these large radio antennas, like this bit massive array of radio antennas pointed at the night sky, listening for radio signals that are of a non-natural natural origin. That's that's most of what I have about her life. She she collected, I think, over a thousand types of microorganisms from different extreme environments um, throughout her, her lifetime. And then in 20, 2005, she did die from Parkinson's um, disease. But I just want to say, like, this is such a cool life, going to Antarctica, discovering these extreme organisms one of the few stories that can actually make me care about life on Mars. Like this is <laughs> because you, know, you like, care about like research in Antarctic and Antarctica. Yeah. I'm I mean, like, that, it's like, that's a key, like a, a path to your heart. Like for me, it's the other way around. It's like, there could be life on Mars. Oh, wow. There's like, like, like you know, like the discovery is like, how cool is this? That there is life. Like this is, but yeah, I think it's a pretty amazing story. And yeah, yeah we'll put some links in, in the bio. And definitely do go and check out Nina Draws Scientist because there's always new scientists every week. And they're just these amazing, incredible women, people of color. Like, just like, yeah. Yeah. Truly great. Yeah. I just had a look. It's really cool. It's really inspiring. And uh, like a whole 
whole new world of, of people to research and, and read more about them. It's really cool. Let's talk, talk, talk about bias, bias, bias. Yeah, uh, this week it's me on on the bias, and uh, I had this theme like the the anxiety led me to research lavender, and the anxiety was also what led me to look for biases, and I found one bias that is particularly linked with anxiety, and that's the interpretive bias. And the idea here is that when when presented with ambiguous information, people who are prone to follow this interpretive bias, they choose the more negative outcome. Like if uh, if they see a person and sense them sort of mixed sickness or ambiguous um, facial expressions, they tend to think that the person wants to do them harm, even though there could also be the outcome that the person doesn't want to do them harm and is maybe just sort of shy or or has some other emotions that are not evil. Wait, is this a bias that everybody has, or is it like specific to some people? It's something that we uh, find very often in, like in, in, in many people, but it's particularly strong in people with anxiety. So there have been experiments where they had um, neutral facial expressions on, on, on photos, and they asked individuals to sort of judge them and say, like, what are these people expressing? And people without anxiety they were sort of saying like, yeah, it's it's like a neutral face or it's like calm and content and whatnot. And anxious participants um, perceived neutral faces much more negative, regardless of the context. Mm -hmm. They would always, when they had a choice of like negative or okay, they would always pick negative. Um, I feel like that's something that I also experience more and more like in uh, these days where I'm like seeing something and it's sort of, it could be okay. It could also be terrible. And I opt for the terrible. And it's like terrible for my own mental well-being. So I is, it, is it bad for you or is it good for you? Like I think... Um, depends how you look at it. Like, it can if, work, work both ways. Like if you stress about it a lot, like if it really gives you a headache and trouble of sleeping, it's bad. If it makes no, you so wary... No, I meant personally for you. No, no, for me I personally, personally for you. I think but I'm suffering. I think it, it makes my life worse. Like all the news, everything that I read, it just like drives this point home of like everything is so terribly, terribly bad. <laughs> um, I think I'm I'm naturally pessimistic about human behavior, but it makes me feel a lot of joy when people are not other jerks. <laughs> this is like, like yeah. I think I've mentioned this before, but like when I watch a movie, what makes my heart sing is the moment. It's not like a love story or somebody, whatever, being nice. It's like when people come together and work as a team and it can be like, literally, I've told you this before, like literally there's a scene in Buffy the Vampire Slayer when like the students are graduating and they all like rip off their graduating gowns and like take out like literal stakes to start staking, you know, and, and access to start murdering vampires together. And for me, the fact that these people who are like disgusting teenagers who are all hating each other and bullying each other are suddenly working together, that just like, that makes me tear up. This is, this is my emotional like weak point. My Achilles heel is this. And I think that's because I'm, I, that's, that's where my pessimism comes in, where it's seeing the opposite gives me joy. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I, I unfortunately I don't have that that positive spin on it. Um I have like this mixture of pessimism, cynicism and this interpretive bias where like <laughs> I see the bad in things. I feel sort of confirmed that oh yeah, like stuff is always bad 
And then I'm also cynical about it. Like, uh, even if something good happens and I can't deny that it's good, I'm like cynical about it. I mean, like, oh yeah, that one thing is, is good. Or they only do it for like the short term. They only do it for the attention. I don't know. A ton of toxic thoughts that are... That's Is that specific to the COVID situation now? Or do you think that's like, let's go general worse, and then it, it got, got worse, worse in COVID? Yeah, yeah I think. Like, I try I mean, to be um, like, I mean, you, you, you know me for a while now. And I was like very, very negative at work for a long time. And I try to be more positive and And... I succeeded to some extent. Like I, I, I had like a more positive onlook on life. But now in 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 the last year and especially in the last four weeks in Germany, particularly, that was crushed so yeah, really bad badly that I'm um, now like in this this. But it actually helped me to read about this because like I know like there's something like my brain is wired to do this and that therefore I can change that. Therefore I can like if I see something that could go two ways. I can actively at least consider or even choose the positive outcome or the not negative interpretation of things. Um, and like, like also this is like contextualizing it continuously. This is pretty much one of the biggest things that's going to happen in our lifetime. Like this is something where it's a historically bad event. It's not just like you're having a time. It's like, this is history books bad and it's going to be in a hundred year time. We're still going to be work like recording. This was a time. It's, yeah. I think that that's helpful as well. Right. To be like, <laughs> yes, <laughs> legitimately bad. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, so that's, I mean, it's a, it's a very short story about the interpretive bias, but um, it sort of fit my, my theme of the month <laughs> of the week. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. I think I'm going to start with a very quick one, a fantastic one, some would say. Um, this is just a shout out to author Saikedo or Saicedo, I'm not sure, and, and colleagues. Um, there was a publication in Plants Basil that came out in February this year. And the title of that publication is called Fantastic Downy Mildew Pathogens and How to Find Them. And then Advances in Detection and Diagnostics. Well done, authors. You made Yarm laugh and you brought joy to my heart. So thanks. Yeah, Yarm just reminded me that um, although we, we appreciate these authors, J.K. Rowling can, can get the turf out. I think we can say that. Okay, good. I, yeah. feel, like, I feel like at this point... It, She's made her stance clear, and I'm happy to make my stance against this stance clear. Like, turf's not welcome. Get this over. <laughs> no? No, no, no. I actually absolutely agree with that. It's just uh, I, I thought, like, I didn't want to give it a negative spin. I, I like the it's title It's not negative. We, we joyfully tell J.K. Rowling to take her billions of dollars, go and to a private up. island. <laughs> um, I also have a short fact for starters. Uh, have you heard about people in Taiwan uh, changing their names massively now? And could you guess what I would change it to and why? I mean, it's a very open question. Like, if you haven't heard of it, it's hard to guess. I'm Can just, I have... I need some hints. I want to guess yeah. this, but I'm going to need it's, some hints. Um, they're in Taiwan. It's specific to the fact that they're in Taiwan? It's specific to something that's happening in Taiwan. And um, it's a promotion. I'm, kind of, I'm going to say that. Like, it's like an advertisement deal. Oh, dear. Taiwan. And um, it's a country that likes to eat fish. This is just too weird. Um, <laughs> it is. <laughs> a promotion for fish. Fish fingers? So they're, they're changing their name to win a competition. If they if they change their name, they will win money from a company. 
Um, so, okay, I yeah. Need, yeah, I'm gonna need you. There's, there's a promotion by um, a, a chain restaurant there that people who have the name Salmon they can eat for free during specific days. <laughs> Amazing. And so people in Taiwan are changing their names to Salmon. Um, because then they can eat for free and uh, uh, like in, in Germany it's super hard to change your name but apparently in Taiwan every citizen has the right to change their name three times during their lifetime oh. without any problems um, and so people are just doing that like students sorry uh, when you say three times if I change it and then change it back is that okay. one time more or is that three Th is that that's two, two times? times okay as far as I understood it, um, but don't don't get me on the technicalities there. But um, like, there's students now that like all, almost like there's like I think a couple hundred now that like change their name to include Salmon, and some people go like, of course, really that's completely worth it. Yeah, I would do that. I mean, if I if I didn't have easy access to food, like yeah, you know, like if you've got free takeout, suddenly you're a student. If you're a student who's like living on student budget, that's yeah. There was like some people quoting like they they. They during one day they already ate like over 170 pounds like sterling pounds sterling worth of of salmon. Um, I mean, if the restaurant actually has, I mean, the thing is, I've been to seafood restaurants in Germany, and I'm going to be honest, for a German seafood restaurant, I would not change my name to salmon. But I would imagine that Taiwan has like actual good quality fish, and it would be completely worth. Yeah, like it's fresh salmon, right? It's going to be real. It's not like deep fried horrible fish fingers. <laughs> What I like best about this story is that um, they, people get even more creative. They're not just being like Peter, Salmon, Smith. They're using that to create very nice um, translations of their names. And one of them that's uh, mentioned in the article is, is uh, roughly translated to explosive, good-looking salmon, which is a perfect name. <laughs> explosive is a little bit of an awkward adjective, especially when you put it next to good-looking. There's some sexual connotations <laughs> there that are making me a little bit uncomfortable about the good-looking salmon. It's a little like, bit weird. He but can also... explode in his own time. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I have to say, like, respect for, for picking that name um, to get some free salmon. And it's also like it's a limited time offer. And, and the students are like, oh, yeah, we know, like, in, in a week we're going to change our names back, but now we want to eat salmon. Um, and so that's what people are doing. And the officials, are, are like Taiwanese officials, are now urging people to stop changing their names just to, to take advantage of this promotion. Um, so, I mean, it's like, it's a couple. So great. I mean, people, people get drunk and get tattoos of like Tweety Bird on their arse. This is just so many steps up from that. This is beautiful bonding. It's, it's a good story. It's just, it's... I'm so happy about this. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. I, I like, yeah, for some, some Taiwanese salmon, I would probably also change my name. Um, but not for the one that we get here. Yeah. What would, what would you reasonably change your, how long is the promotion for? Hey, let me let me look it up. I think it's just for a couple of days, actually. Okay, um, that's maybe not long enough for me. Yeah, I mean the the paperwork apparently is very easy to do there, so there it's worth it. Uh, yeah, but I'm, I'm imagining like I, the, the value is also that you can eat certain amounts of food, and I can't eat that much in one sitting. So it's, it's a like two day promotion that ended on Thursday. It's not enough. <laughs> it's not enough. <laughs> Any any customer who has uh, like an ID card that contains the, the words gu uh, yu or gu yu, um, which is the Chinese characters for summon. <laughs> I think you have to get a new ID card. So like today, I, I was imagining like a student. So we have a friend, we have a very close friend who ate ketchup on crackers for dinner for a month 
because their parent was parents were sending them money for food when they were in college, and they decided to use that money to go to a concert instead. So <laughs> they ate ketchup on crackers. <laughs> and this, like, this would make sense to me. But like, you know, for one month, I'm guaranteed that every night I can go and have a nice fish meal. That's well worth my name being changed. <laughs> for yeah. two days, I'm. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's other names that that translate to salmon prince, meteor salmon king, and salmon fried rice. And somebody else like really went 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 ahead and added a record of 36 new characters to the name. Most of them seafood themes, including the characters for abalone, crab, and lobster. So just See, in case there's other ahead. exactly, <laughs> he's like, <laughs> if there's any future promotions, I'm there. I, I'm ready. Like I got all the things I like to eat in my name. <laughs> That's amazing. But you should also have like fried chicken. Like you should like target yes. the other like joints, the other <laughs> fast food joints. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. That's commitment. <laughs> it really is, but I think it's worth it. And they're going to graduate. <laughs> if they don't change it back, they just graduate with that name. That's also quite funny. Yes. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. I think we need to move on, but I'm sad to do it. <laughs> yes. Um. So this is a story that was on Science News a couple of weeks ago, and it's related to a publication that came out in Current Biology in January 22nd. And it's just a publication about Sapria. Do you know what sapria plants are? No. Um, have a look at them and see if you recognize what it is. Just go S-A-P-R-I-A. Sapria. So it's native to Southeast Asia. It's an endoparasite, so a parasitic plant um, that lives inside of vine hosts. And then it makes one of these big speckled flowers that can be like 20 centimeters wide. Um, yeah, but it looks like like the flowers in, in like shape and color and stuff look like the actual, like the biggest, the largest flower on earth. That's like... Like over the raffalasia, it's 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 quite similar to raffalasias, and again, those are also parasitic plants. So there's some similarity. I'm not sure how closely related they are actually, but like I think it, they are from the same. family. It's in the same family, yeah. It's in the raffalaceae family, um, and yeah, because they are parasitic, it's it's quite common that they parasitic plants tend to ditch genes. They just like stop having the genes that they don't need. Um, so this has been found before in the raffalasia family that. A lot of the genes involved in photosynthesis have just like gone missing over time because the plants are literally just too lazy to photosynthesize. They don't make leaves. They yeah. just like <laughs> suck the lifeblood out of one of their hosts for a certain amount of years and then use all that to make these massive energetic like it looks like a fly agaric mushroom. It's like so much, it's so beautiful, it's so big. It also they they smell like rotten fruit. They sometimes they warm up, I think, to make to smell they're, like even they're stronger. Pretty much, like they're pretty much like a child that moves back into their parents' basement <laughs> and then forgets how to cook and care for itself. Like slowly yeah, and loses the, the crap this smelling is also <laughs> it starts to get like large and colorful and also starts to smell bad and like leeches like out of their parasitic hose, like it yeah, leeches I them from out of all the energy, all of the things. Anyway, um, so this was basically the the finding here in current biology was that the sapria has lost about forty four percent of um conserved plant genes, so genes that are found across other plants. Um, it's similar to what I've seen in other parasitic plants. Um, basically, it's yeah, streamlined things, lost things it doesn't need. Um. 
it's a lazy, lazy plant. And that discovery was from um, Kai et al. Uh, published in March this year. And it's called Deeply Altered Genome Architecture of the Endoparasitic Flowering Plant, Sapra Himalayana. So well done, plants, showing that not all plants have to put the effort into photosynthesis. <laughs> um, I have something about a hitchhiker. Like, um, yeah, it's not linked to my Douglas Adams quotes from today, but uh, apparently, maybe subconsciously, it is. Um, there has been um, research going into uh, uh, into the way Streptomyces, so that's a kind of bacterium, makes its way from plant to plant because it's like bacteria. They come like roughly speaking, there's two kinds of bacteria: bacteria that move and bacteria that don't move. Like bacteria that move have flagella, and they they are able to propel themselves through like a medium, often through like water, and make like go from A to B. And they can be quite fast. Like um, certain um, certain bacteria, they can go like in within ten minutes, they can go across like a petri dish. And if you imagine like how tiny that bacterium is. Like that's a massive distance. Like I didn't do the proper calculation how much that would be if we would move as fast, but it's 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 quite fast. Um, uh, but Streptomyces, on the other hand, which can be very uh, beneficial to plants, um, they don't have flagella, but still they live next to or on on plants very often. Um, and they they realized uh, or they, what they what they found out is that Streptomyces this bacterium it forms spores when it um, sort of um, divides, and these spores they have special proteins on them that can hitchhike on other bacteria's flagella. And so if a bacteria if, if a bacterium with flagella zooms past, it sort of these these spores cling to the flagella and are dragged across, and then therefore that's how they can move from plant to plant. And it's interesting to know because these Streptomyces they often exp um, express certain antibiotics that are then helpful to the plant because they sort of suppress the growth of other fungi and other bacteria that could be harmful to the plant um, while then in exchange getting like some sort of nutrients from the plant without damaging it. And therefore for the plants, Streptomyces is a very important part of their sort of root biome of the of the bacteria that hang around there. And um, knowing how they, they move across just makes it easier for us to sort of plan and interact with the, the plant microbiome in the, in the, in the roots. Okay. Oh, I have something which segues from the topic of bacteria, I think. Um, it's, not, it's not really plant-related, I'm sorry about that, but it's a publication from Scientific American, which is by Jennifer Fraser. It came out at the start of March, and it's called 100 Million-Year-Old Seafloor Sediment Bacteria Has Been Resurrected. And I think this is um, a really nice story. It kind of mixes that that fear that we we often have come up about, you know, stuff emerging from the depths, or you know, these these old Lovecraftian tales of of horrors that emerge from um, Antarctica, which I think actually also I think I stole that from the article. I think that comes um, <laughs> up Lovecraft. Um, it's based on a paper that is published in Nature Communications. It came out in July. Um, but I want to highlight the article just because it's it's really amazing writing and it's it's fun. <laughs> it's really yeah. So it it does mention Lovecraft and the botanical Cthulhu. Cthulhu. I don't even know how you say that. Cthulhu. I think. Cthulhu. But I'm not sure. I think it's meant to be not easy to pronounce. I think that's like part of the <laughs> mythology that you can't really naturally pronounce it. Okay. Um, but 
it's it's just beautiful. It's let me see if I can find a nice a nice bit to read out. Okay, so they're talking about how they found these microbes and then they woke them up and, you know, it says, you know, the microbes got straight to work doing what bacteria do and with 68 days of incubation increase their numbers up to 10,000 fold. But then, like, it goes on and says, it's worth pausing to consider the meaning of these results. In this experiment, cells awoke and multiplied that settled to the bottom when pterosaurs and plesiosaurs drifted overhead. So I just, I found this really such a pleasing you know, science journalism at its best. Really a nice read, and I would recommend you all go and check that out. It's it's very charming. Uh, I have something on solar cells and greenhouses. Um, they There has been a study performed um, trying to evaluate if we could actually put solar cells on top of greenhouses uh, to reduce the energy usage of greenhouses. And, I mean, solar cells, when you think of them, they are these opaque, black, blackish um, um, slates, that yeah, I'm thinking the, the point of greenhouses is to have like glass ceilings so that the light comes through. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, it's one place where it's good to have a glass ceiling, I think. And uh, <laughs> <But oomch. laughs> I was so wow, <laughs> so proud of my pun there that I forgot where I wanted to go with it. Um, but uh, there is another new type of solar cells, and these are semi-transparent. They're so uh, so called STOC cells, or I, th I guess the C stands for cells. Um, and these solar cells, they let light through and they take out some of the wavelengths of the light to convert them into electrical energy. Uh, and you can, when you manufacture them, you can sort of decide what uh, wavelengths you take out <gasps> of them. And so take the green ones out. Exactly. And that's what they, in, in the study, they didn't use the um these special panels themselves they used uh, different kinds of light filters in greenhouses to mimic the effect of these these solar panels of like different um setups different wavelengths that it would let through and different wavelengths that it would filter out and they realized that when they um would let just a photosynthetically active light through that the plants would grow just as well uh, which means that if we would um, construct these STOC and put them on top of the greenhouses that we could grow the plants with no yield penalty and get some energy output as well that could then, for example, power the air conditioning or the watering system and stuff like that to to reduce the the energy cost, which is often quite high for greenhouses. Um, the The downside is that these STOC panels are still very new and not very efficient so far, so it would need like another jump in efficiency for it to be actually economically viable because right now it's technically possible to make those but they are very expensive and they don't produce a lot of power yet but if we could sort of overcome this then we could make greenhouses that can actually cr produce electrical energy and uh, biomass at the same time i think it's it's such a cool topic right there's i think you've also talked about you know growing coffee plants underneath solar cells or something mm -hmm. like that having the chili this plants i think it was there was okay like, there's like the setup with like the partly shading them but i think yeah the shading and also like it can increase the humidity under there as well which can be beneficial for some plants and yeah. I, I although like, that yeah. was in arizona like there was where it's like oh, extremely okay. hot and usually problematically oh hot. in the deserts of de deserts or something yeah but still yeah, yeah. like there's more, more but also even with natural structures this idea of like having an understory plants and then you know usually cannabis and something over the top as well but like you know <laughs> <laughs> no wait maybe it doesn't work with cannabis you know what i'm thinking of i'm thinking of um scanner darkly do you did you see that no i haven't I'll seen read that, that. Yet. 
they have like something that makes some sort of purple drug and they're growing it in the fields, like mm. in between actual crops of food. Like mm. it's, it's on the ground and you can't see it from above. Oh, yeah, that, yeah, that's clever. Just a note for anybody who wants to be. <laughs> <laughs> Probably people do it. I'm sure people do it already with. Yeah, I think we, we can't give any meaningful tips and hints how to grow cannabis to the people who actually want to grow cannabis. I, I think, think last time I was like, let's, let's grow it outdoors. And you were like, no, Tegan, that's just not how people are doing it. <laughs> I mean, it's I, not that I ever attempted it. Like, I, I have not enough ambition for any of the, the things required to grow my own cannabis. But um, so, yeah, I also don't know a lot about it. I just know that if you grow it outside, it's it can be problematic because then, like, the cops will show up. I think I want my last fact to be something that probably people have heard about. It was, I think, in the Nature Briefing a couple of weeks back. And <laughs> I'm just going to read out the headline. It's from Heidi Leg Ledford. Sorry. Um, in Nature, in the news, we'll put the link. But the headline is, Scientists grew tiny tear glands in a dish, then made them cry. Well done, scientists! <laughs> so they have, like, sad dishes now. It's like Beauty and the Beast, but in lab. It does seem like there's a lot of really cool stuff happening with making these um, like organoids now. We're getting to that stage where we can get cells to come together in a way that's really acting like a heart or like a tongue. Or I mean, I don't know if it is like a tongue, so, but you know, they're doing what they should be doing and it's, it's insanely cool. Should we do a cat fact? Yeah, let's do a cat fact. I, cat fact. Cat fact. I actually came with a cat fact, but I've just seen what Yarm has on the page, and I don't want to do my cat fact. I want to do his non-cat fact. So take it away, Yarm. Yeah, I have a cat fact that's not really about cats, but it's Shut about up. something very, very adorable. It's about snoozing lemu lem lemus lem lemurs 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 like like the beans, right? Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, no, but also for <laughs> English. <laughs> to be fair, <laughs> it should be Lemure because it would be Demure, although Demure would have an E, which also I don't know why. Like, there's no reason why it's Lemur, right? I would like probably. Like it probably is Lemur in like because it's it's like Madagascar and it's probably French speaking, so probably Lemur would be the correct way to say it, right? Yeah, I don't know. But in English, we're going with lemurs, and you yeah. just have to like shut the f up and deal with it. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's about snoozing lemurs, um, and about the study of hibernation and what i didn't know is that we couldn't until this research we couldn't have hibernating animals in the lab because hibernation is a process that's triggered by like environmental factors and if you have like a warm cage and enough food there is no incentive for the animal to go into hibernation so and also, like, once you find a sleeping bear in the wild, you don't, like, pick it up and bring it to the lab. Like, nobody's like, you know what we should do with this hibernating bear is, like, wake it up. No, but, I mean, that's literally what, what was done before because you couldn't do it in the lab. You would have to, like, go in the field. And if you wanted to do studies, you had to do them on wild hibernating animals. You had to, like, find where they're hibernating and then do your research in, in situ, sort of. And that's what problematic. Risk? I mean, because first of all, you have to find them. And the, these lemurs, they're quite small. Um, and also it's limited what you can do in such an experiment when you have to like work with wild animals where you can't control things like diet and so on. Um, so they they 
played around with the conditions in in their in their lab and they realized that when they adjusted the diet and the temperatures they could um sort of push the these dwarf lim uh, lemurs into actually going into proper hibernation um and this led then then this meant that they could stick some like tiny sensors on their fur and uh, measure like the yeah Tegan is pulling doing a face and you will do the same face like you can't imagine like what's Tegan looking like now but take a mirror open the link that we have in the show notes and then look at your own face this is the face Tegan's making right now because oh they my look God, he's so adorable incredibly adorable like oh, so his name is the fat tailed dwarf lima <laughs> yes because they store fat in their tail that they use then during hibernation to to power themselves um but with that now we can study these dwarf lemurs which are the closest primates to us humans that still hibernate um and um they can measure their heart rates and their uh, body temperature and they like the body temperature drops to like eight degrees celsius and their uh, heart rate, they had like in some cases they could measure in, in, in these lemurs that there was 21 minutes between two heartbeats. Like they are incredibly like shutting their entire metabolism down, um, which brings us back to like the space travel theme from, from before of, of this <laughs> could be interesting oh, no. <laughs> if we could make humans do the same thing um, because like they, they are studying now the genes that are involved in hibernation and if we could understand that hypothetically with like a lot of if a lot of science fiction in there then we could potentially like figure out how to use that to have humans hibernate but apart I from that i don't know how you can look at this beautiful sleepy lemur and not find that to be enough like what is wrong with yourself <laughs> yes, i agree <laughs> that you don't feel satisfaction and you don't think you know what it doesn't have to be about space it just has to be about sleepy lemurs. I think I think this is how you get the funding, right? Like you want to look at the sleepy lemurs, but <laughs> if you just put that on your on your ground uh, application and be like, look, I have like attach <laughs> really a picture of a sleepy lemur and be like, we need more of this. Then like mm. people like the people that uh, look at the grants, they sometimes don't know how to work with Word and they don't see the pictures, and then they're like, <laughs> they don't see the they don't they don't open the attachment, they miss the sleepy lemur. Yeah, and then anybody like, oh, who looks at no the sleepy lemur would immediately throw all of the money at the sleepy lemur. But now they're like, oh yeah, space stuff, and like, oh yeah, space stuff is important. You take the money, and we like, I mean, it's for the good of all of us. We get pictures of sleepy lemurs. Um, so yeah, that's that's uh, the science of, uh, of our hibernation now study because now they like they have to set up. They can now do all kinds of experiments with them. I don't know, give them coffee before going to bed, and then see like how long they hibernate for and whatnot. I don't know what what animal researchers do, um, but um, I think they I think giving drugs to animals are pretty. <laughs> pretty large at least in the 70s you know let's give some ecstasy to an elephant let's like give cocaine to bees and see how they swarm like yeah was so, very in yeah so maybe these poor lemurs will now like see a future of substance abuse i don't i hope not i hope oh they, my get, gosh, like, they should give them lavender and see if they go to sleep <laughs> if they sleep even longer and even more relaxed right back. <laughs> He doesn't need like he just stares into his own eyes to be relaxed. Like you just give him a mirror and the the beautiful liquid pools of of gorgeousness just like <laughs> it's enough. Maybe it is maybe enough. That's, 
like they put it in in the article that's like temperature and and diet but maybe what they actually were doing they were giving them like little lavender cushions and then they would like sleep on those and that would trigger the hibernation actually because they would I think there's so a lot relaxed. of weird going on in ab- animal laughs. There's a lot of like, <laughs> I don't know. I think fluffy like, pillows. <laughs> much much more controlled than our like plant labs. I think we're like we could do whatever we want with our plants. Uh I think in, in animal research, like there's constantly look, somebody looking over your shoulder, look, making sure that you're like not causing unnecess- unnecessary harm. There's no way, like it's a physical impossibility that one of the researchers didn't sing a lullaby to this lemur at one stage. Like there's just true. I'm looking at it and I want to just sing "Rockabye Baby." So and I can't Cuddle sing. It. You've heard me. You've heard me not sing. <laughs> it looks so incredibly it's not cozy. possible. It's wrapped up in a little blankie. <laughs> it's like a little sleeping hat on some pajamas. Exactly. Again, there's no way one of the grad students is not knitting a little sleeping hat in their spare time. Like, there's just... It's not... Ha- it's <laughs> like a little... A tiny lemur-sized cup of hot chocolate next to him. <laughs> Amazing. Um, yeah. I think we should end on that slight insanity yes. that went on there. Um, <laughs> if you want to get in contact with us and send us more pictures of sleeping lemurs, you can do that over social media. On Twitter, you can find me at Plants Pipettes. Um, I will remind you that Instagram is actually a visual media. So <laughs> that's where you should be sending the lemur pictures. And that's me. I'm also on Facebook. It's at Plants and Pipettes. We also have a website, it's called uh, plantsandpipettes.com, where we publish one to two articles every week. This week we talked about a superhero protein that's involved in iron transport from the roots to the shoots. So you should look at that. What's Iron Man's theme song? Because I'm just thinking Iron Man, Iron Man, but that's just not right. Is I it? have no idea what the th- theme song is. I only know, I think the only one I could like barely remember is like the Batman theme song from the 70s and only because it's sort of a meme. Like na 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 Iron Man. So we're going with that. You can also write us. The episode we get sued in. You can write us wherever you can write shows, and please tell your friends about this show. It helps us to find you. Yeah, that's the best thing I think. Just tell people. Just make them listen. Put put your headphones on their heads and be like, "Let's do this." About like three hours in, something sets in, and they have a desire to keep listening. We think. Um, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And with that, goodbye. It's the end of the show. <laughs> Yarm just scolded me for not saying goodbye. Bye, everyone.